guys, welcome back into the woodshed. We've got another great episode for you today. We're going to continue with our history series and we're going to talk about the Reformation period. So stick around and we'll get started. Guys, so hey, welcome back in. We've got a great addition to our history series. Now, last time we talked about the Renaissance and we talked about kind of this rebirth uh, idea, you know, that they, they really embrace the idea of what if and started to explore. Uh, they started to make advancements in art and, and uh, culture and these various different things. But also, it kind of, uh, with the blessings that came in the Renaissance period, also we had some curses that came with it as well, which uh, the biggest one kind of being this humanistic uh, element to it of trusting in man. We are the solution to our own problems. We can fix the world. All of that really kind of came about and was capitalized in the Renaissance period. Now, remember that you know during that Renaissance period, the largest, most important institution in the world was the church. And the church was the Catholic church. That was basically the only big, uh, you know, large uh, institutional religion of the day as far as Christianity is concerned. And so that the Catholic church carried a lot of power, a lot of prestige over the entire world, especially in Europe. And so with that, uh, you know, the marriages between the royal families were blessed by the Pope and endorsed by the Pope, a lot of times arranged by the Pope. Uh, peace treaties and things always involved the Pope. Um, and in most of the European countries, the church, the Catholic church, actually owned more land than the royal families did. So they would control the economy, they controlled the agriculture, they controlled uh, the imports, the exports, uh, the relationships between the different countries. They were extremely, extremely powerful. So the Renaissance kind of saw a decrease in the church's power, and it saw an increase in this humanism and the questioning of everything. Well, that questioning of everything is what leads us into the Reformation. Now, the most important figure during the Reformation is a man by the name of Martin Luther, who is a German monk or a German priest of the Catholic Church. So around 1483 is when we see Martin Luther kind of step into the stage. And here, the Pope is very powerful, the, you know, but the Church is kind of selling itself out. As it becomes powerful, people want to weasel their way in, and with that, they are given clergy jobs away, priest jobs, to just simply people who are connected to, um, you know, to members of the royal families or somebody's cousin or somebody who was uh, a very prosperous family uh, that here, these clergy jobs within this institution of the Catholic Church are being given away to people because of politics versus because of piety. So it's not because a person is is dedicated to God, but rather that they could use this position for the benefit of their country, the benefit of their family, the benefit of themselves. Um, all of these sorts of things start to play into it. So you would have these royal families jockey for position and try to put their relatives to be appointed to different districts or different jobs within the Catholic Church. 
Well, with this decrease on uh, you know people who are sincere in the faith and an increase in people who are just kind of playing politics, a lot of really dumb things come into the church. Uh, the biggest being the selling of indulgences. So this is basically how the Catholic Church funded itself before bingo, and um, and they would simply allow people alive today to pay a certain amount of money to make a donation for this amount to the church, and in exchange, the priests would agree to pray the, their dead relatives out of purgatory. Now, being a good Christian and having read your Bible, you probably wonder, what in the world is purgatory? Because you can't find it in the Bible. Well, it's just something that the Catholics came up with, that it's kind of a, a holding cell for souls that once you die, that people go to this holding place and they have to kind of um, be penitent in that, uh, in that spiritual realm for a certain amount of time until their sins are wiped away and then they can go to heaven. But uh, for a small donation, you could uh, give your, you know, give your relatives a Disney fast pass into heaven. They would shorten their time that they would serve in purgatory and be able to go to heaven all the much sooner. Now, not only did they do that, but they would also sell um, basically a excuses for sin that you could uh, that God wouldn't count this certain sin against you in exchange for a certain amount of money. Those things are not in the Bible. They are a big problem. They teach a works-based salvation, and honestly, it's just weird. It's a Catholic Christian church that's not very Catholic, and it's not very Christian anymore. Well, Martin Luther, having been schooled in this wrongness, uh, makes the big mistake of actually reading his Bible. And when he reads his Bible, he doesn't see most of what he's been trained in and much of what he was doing, he's not seeing it there. So he has a big problem. In fact, he finds 95 problems. And he in 1517, he will nail a 95 thesis detailing 95 problems that he has with the Catholic Church. And he nails it to the church house doors in the town in which he lives in Germany. Well, the church house doors were kind of the Facebook of the day, and so everybody is reading these problems, everybody's seeing it, and they see this monk, this priest that they, that they loved, that they understood, that had served beside them, that they had a, an affection for, and they see his stand against the Catholic Church, and his teaching begins to echo throughout the church, and instead of reforming the Catholic Church, which is what Martin Luther was after, he wasn't after the ending of the Catholic Church, he actually just wanted it to get back to the Bible. Well, instead of reforming it, they try him for heresy, and they find him guilty, not of disobeying the Bible, but rather than just breaking with church tradition. It was going to hurt the, church, the church's coffers. It was going to dry up the offerings if they got rid of this scam of selling indulgences. So he's tried for heresy. He's excommunicated from the Catholic Church, and there begins the Protestant Church and the Great Reformation, the key words being protest and reform. So he leaves the Catholic Church and now forms a Protestant church. And there, basically, the reforms that he wanted to take place in the Catholic Church are carried out in the Protestant Church. And a denomination would arise later to identify themselves with this 
of the Lutherans after Martin Luther. And Luther would translate the scriptures from Latin into German so that the everyday man would be able to read it and understand and see God for himself. Well, Protestantism would grow rapidly. There had been many other critics arise in the, in the Catholic Church and make a stand against them. Uh, for During that generation, Martin Luther was just the most well-known and the most successful one. And so Protestantism would grow. It would grow like a wildfire, and it would constantly challenge the Catholic Church for control and for domination. There would even be wars over official state religions, whether a, whether a country was going to be Protestant or whether they were going to be Catholic. They would actually fight wars, and many countries would swap from Protestant to Catholic as an official religion for many, many, many years, depending upon who was on the throne at the time. Well, in 1534, we see an English Reformation. So Henry VIII would break with the Catholic Pope and would declare himself as the head of the Catholic of, of the Church of England, which would later become known as the Anglican Church, and still today is known as Anglican, and even Episcopalians are pretty much Anglican too. It's pretty much the same thing. Well, the idea is the divorce over his wife. It's not a spiritual issue, but rather it's just about that the Pope wouldn't grant him a divorce, and so he decided he would make himself a Pope and divorce his wife and the Pope at the same time. So this would lead to a lot of problems. Now we've got Catholics, we've got Anglicans, then we'd see the rise of the Scottish Presbyterians, the Puritans, the Separatists, but Spain is still Catholic, and the colonies are still Catholic at the time, too. So we have, in America, we do have the city of St. Augustine, Florida, that's been founded as a permanent settlement of Spain. Well, about five years after Spain settles into America, we see an Englishman named John Cabot. He sails to Newfoundland, Canada. Now, hundred years later, we'd see the first, you know, the first settlement there because of religious infighting. But we do see that only five years after Spain is here that the English first make contact as well. Well, now what we have is during this time where the English find the new land is Henry VII is on the throne. And Henry VII defeats the House of York in the War of Roses, and he becomes king. Now, he's not that important other than his son, Henry VIII, follows him to the throne. And he needs a male heir. Well, his first wife gives him a daughter named Mary, but fails to produce a male heir, so he seeks a divorce from her by the Pope. The Pope denies it. He creates the Anglican Church, grants himself a divorce, and marries his second wife. Once again, he has one daughter named Elizabeth. Well, he accuses his wife of adultery, has her beheaded, marries his third wife, and finally he gets a son. But his son, as Edward VI, is a very sickly child and would die fairly young. And then comes wife number four, number five, number six, with no child. So after Henry Henry VIII passes, Edward VI would take the throne. His sickly son would take the throne at, eight, at nine years of age and would pass away at the age of 15. Well, once he passes away, then uh, Henry VIII's daughter from his first marriage named Mary would take over, 
and she would have a short five-year reign, but her reign is marked uh, by persecution and death. She's actually given a nickname of Bloody Mary, and she sought to reestablish the Catholic religion in England and actually began to kill Anglicans, which is the church her father started, and Protestants in the country. Well, luckily, after a five-year reign, she dies, and, uh, and Henry VIII's daughter from his second marriage takes over, which is Queen Elizabeth I. Now, this isn't Queen Elizabeth that just passed away in our lifetime, although that lady seemed old enough that it could possibly be her, but rather that this is, uh, this is Queen Elizabeth I, and she's known as the Virgin Queen because she never marries, never has a child. And she restores the Church of England, or the Anglican Church, as the official religion, and she's very instrumental in the colonization of Roanoke, North Carolina. And you can research into the lost colony of Roanoke, and there's a lot of interesting stuff there. But then also, there was this tension between, between Britain and Spain, or between England and Spain, because now Spain had established itself as a big player in the naval, you know, in the oceans of, of international trade and, and search and discovery and exploration. And England was coming on as well. Uh, Elizabeth had traded for wood coming out of uh, coming out of Europe, and there they began to build boats to be able to get on the high seas and ex- do their own exploration. They'd heard of the exploits of Portugal and Spain, and England wants a piece of the action too. The only problem is that Spain is standing in the way. Well, Spain moves into the waters around England, and England now with this new navy goes out to war against them and ends up winning. And so they defeat Spain, which gives England the dominance on the high seas, as now Spain, still as a young country, still trying to come into their own and establish themselves in the world, now they don't have the financial resources to immediately resupply that navy, which gives England dominance. So England has dominance. France uh, begins to settle into the New World as well. And so here in America, we see that France comes in and settles the city of Quebec. And they would discover the Great Lakes. Also, they would sail down the Mississippi River and find a port in the city of New Orleans, which wouldn't officially be established until 1718, quite some time away. But here on this new world, on this new continent, on, on the American continent, we see Spain and Florida. We see that now we have the British who have, who have discovered into this Canada area, and also France is in the Canada area. We have uh, the Netherlands have come in. We have the Swiss who are also there in what would later be called Delaware. So we have a lot of people who are landing and finding themselves there. Well, now Elizabeth passes away. So we've gone from Henry VII to Henry VIII to Bloody Mary to the Virgin Queen Elizabeth. And so when she dies, Virgin Queens don't have heirs. So there was a problem. And they had to back up to Elizabeth's grandfather, Henry VII, and he had a great-great-grandson who was King James VI of Scotland. And so King James VI of Scotland is named King of England and resets his name to 
King James I of England. So he's the sixth in Scotland, but the first in England. And King James I is who would give us the King James Version of the Bible in 1611, which is largely the work of William Tyndale, who was killed for his translating the Bible into English during the reign of some of King James's relatives. And shortly after taking the throne in 1603, what we'll see is 1607 is the first official permanent colony in the New World. We have a strong king, we have a strong economy, we have a weak Spain, and so here King James takes advantage of it to make the first settlement in this new America, and it is Jamestown, after King James, in a territory called Virginia, which the root word is virgin, after Elizabeth, the virgin queen. Now we see 120 men who are adventurers who come into this Virginia area. They're not farmers or hunters. They're explorers, and they're not good with food. They begin to trade with the Indians, and actually some of them take Indians as wives. Even the great Pocahontas that we know from from previous stories. Here, Pocahontas actually marries one of these explorers named John Rolfe. She would take on the name of Rebecca and convert from... Native American, you know, polytheism to the Anglican Church and ultimately would pass away in England in 1617. Now, during this whole time that we see Jamestown begin to uh, flourish, we see the Virginia, they start out with 120 men within 30 or 40 years. There's 15,000 people in the colony of Virginia. And at the same time, in 1619, is the first, ten, first time that the Dutch sell over with 20 African prisoners of war that they sell to the colonists as slaves. Now, it's notice that here these are not Africans that the Dutch enslaved, but rather that they had purchased as POWs from the African nations. So Africa enslaved them. They were sold to the Dutch and trafficked into the Americas, They were bought by the English, and then later in future episodes, we'll talk about the freeing of the slaves done by the Americans. Now, the Church of England had a problem. They were still a little too Catholic. And so there were groups of people who saw this and recognized that a lot of the problems of the Catholic Church were just replicated in the Church of England that they were having the same problems of uh, political appointments, of uh, the offices and the sacraments being used for political gain and for monetary gain. And so there was a lot of problems, and there were some groups who thought that it needed to be purified. These were called Puritans. And then there were others who just simply didn't want anything to do with them, and they wanted to distance themselves from the Catholics and from the Anglicans, and these were called separatists. They just wanted to be separate. So some wanted to purify, some wanted to separate. And so the problem was is that the Anglicans, although they were very anxious to be free from the Pope and to have their own freedom from the Pope, did not want people to have the freedom from the Anglicans. They didn't want to be free. They wanted to hold these people captive. And there was a lot of prison. There was a lot of death that happened to these Puritans and to these separatists. Well, in 1608, one group of separatists uh, actually moves from Britain into the Netherlands, but they didn't like it because the problem was is that their kids were ending up 
a little too Dutch for them. They wanted to have good English kids. They didn't want to have Dutch kids. And so the kids going to Dutch schools, being around other Dutch children, were beginning to dress and behave like the Dutch. And so in 1620, a hundred of these separatists load up on a boat called the Mayflower, and they become pilgrims. Now, as they're sailing, you know, they had heard of this new colony, of this new land, because, of course, England, where they're from, is, uh, you know, is settling, and they have Jamestown going on in Virginia and all of this. And at the same time, they're living in the Netherlands, and the Netherlands have an explorer named Henry Hudson who finds this other land, and that's who the Hudson River is named after, that's north of Virginia, in a territory that the Netherlands had settled that they called New Amsterdam. Well, New Amsterdam would later be surrendered to the English and renamed New York. But there, this Dutch colony is there as well, and so they say, hey, let's try it in this new world. We can be further away from our oppressors. There's plenty of land. We can just separate ourselves and be pure and not be corrupted by the Catholics, not be corrupted by the Anglicans. So they set sail for Virginia, and by mistake, they land in Massachusetts. And they named that landing spot, spot Plymouth after the English city from which they set sail. In the first year, half of these settlers would die, and a few years later, a large group of them would move a few miles north to the city of what they would call Boston on the Massachusetts Bay. And they were led by a man named John Winthrop, who in 1636 would establish the Harvard College in order to train ministers in congregational Puritanism. Now, what a far cry Harvard is from that original uh, purpose and intention. They don't train ministers there anymore, and they're anything but congregational or Puritan there. They are as secular and as wicked as humanly possible. But during this whole time, what we see is we see this, um, this emergence of all these different colonies being uh, established, of all these different movements and ideas that begin to come into the Americas. Uh, these different groups see it as their opportunity to have a place of their own. And we see in 1636, Roger Williams, who comes into Boston, and he's around in that Boston-Plymouth area, and he is a minister, and he's offered various different jobs, but he's looking around, and he, he's from the oppression of the English and the Anglican Church, and here he is now in the Americas, and he's looking at there's all these different cities with these state churches or city churches and that the, the church is the courthouse, the church is um, the religious, the political, the military, there, everything is wrapped up in the church. And he sees that now, instead of having the oppression of big government, they have the oppression of small government as well. And so Roger Williams will move north to find a place for a separation of church and state and would end up finding founding Rhode Island, and he does it with the providence of God, and so therefore the capital of Rhode Island is Providence. 
During the same time that we're seeing Boston be established, we see Rhode Island be established, we also see James I, who is the son of Charles I, um, or whose son, Charles I, would later be beheaded by Oliver Cromwell in, in, the, uh, in the Puritan Revolution in uh, England there, that he gives a charter to a man named George Calvert to establish a land north of Virginia, the land named after the Virgin Queen Elizabeth. And George Calvert's official title is Lord of Baltimore. And so there he founds Maryland, which is named after Bloody Mary. And so Baltimore, Maryland becomes a thing as a Catholic refuge for English Catholics in England to flee to. So if they don't like the persecution or the hardness that they're suffering under uh, because of being in an Anglican, uh, an Anglican uh, country, then here is a Catholic refuge for Englishmen. A few years later, Charles II, after Cromwell uh, leaves power, Charles II is brought in as king, and he will give a commission for the founding of a colony south of Virginia named Carolina. And Carol is the French version of Charles, so it's named after his father, King Charles I. Now, King Charles II would also name his brother, James II, which is the Duke of York, to be in charge of the territory that the Netherlands had uh, founded called New Amsterdam. Now, the problem was is that the Netherlands hadn't agreed with this. They, they didn't know of this plot, and all of a sudden they hear that England now has put James II as the ruler over their own territory. Well, the Netherlands surrendered the settlement without a shot being fired because the settlement was largely populated by Mennonites who were pacifists. So they knew they couldn't raise an army from, you know, from the territory to stand up against them. So they give away this New Amsterdam territory, which is now renamed New York after James II, Duke of York, who is in charge of the territory. 1681, we see a, a, this, a huge swath of land being given from the English king to a man named William Penn. Now, he's given this big tract of land because the king owed William Penn a lot of money. Well, he gives this colony, and it becomes known as Penn's Woods or Pennsylvania. And William Penn sees it as a holy experiment. He was a Quaker, and in that, he, he, it's largely founded and, and populated by Mennonites and Amish, by Baptists coming out of France and Ireland and Germany. And at the same time that Pennsylvania is being founded, we also see that William Penn gets a charter for another territory, just Slightly along to the east there, there's three counties which were normally or was originally founded by the Swiss as a whaling outfit. And they would land there and they would uh, then go out whaling to kill whales and sell the blubber and things like that as a fuel source. And it goes from the Swiss hands into the Dutch hands into the York hands and now is given over to Thomas Penn. And it's named after a former Virginia governor named Thomas de la War. And so the state becomes Delaware. And so it's given over to him to repay again this large debt that the King of England 
owed to William Penn, probably because of the endless wars that uh, that Charles I was engaged in, where Parliament refused to fund them, and he found private financing in William Penn's father. Now we come on down to 1733, and what we have is James Oglethorpe is founding Georgia. And the whole reason that Georgia is founded is to be a buffer zone between the Catholic Spanish Florida and all of the English settlements. So with that, they don't want the Spanish moving north, and the easiest thing to do is to, for them to move south until they find a borderland and, uh, and there to prevent the Spanish from expanding. And this area of Georgia is a kind of another social experiment, and it's intended as a second chance for people in the English debtor's prison. So they have a problem that they have too many prisoners, and, uh, and these guys, they didn't commit any real crime other than not being able to pay their debts, and so England just ships them over into this new territory, this new colony, uh, to keep the Spanish away and to keep the Spanish from, uh, from going north, and so they fill Georgia with prisoners. And it still feels that way today if you've been to Georgia. There's a lot of crime and, and a, lot of, uh, a lot of illness there in Georgia. Now, these colonies are starting to take off, and we're starting to see this original 13 colonies really take shape, although the, the shape of the states and the borders would move and shift over the years. We have most of them now in play. We see that a lot of them were named after the royal families uh, of England, you know, starting from Henry VII and coming down. But this population that's now in the colonies is kind of diverse. It's a very odd uh, you know, people group that's here. Most of the settlers are in their 20s. They're young men, primarily young men. In fact, only one-third of the nation is families. So these young men, they have money, they have freedom, they have nothing but opportunity ahead of them, but there's a lot of drunkenness and there's a lot of prostitution in the colonies. They're primarily populated with Scots and Irish and Germans and Dutch along with, their, along with your English. And here they really begin to settle and they really begin to populate. And Philadelphia in Pennsylvania is, actually becomes the second largest city in the British Empire. So you have London and then you have Philadelphia as the second largest city. What you have as well is a lot of these settlers are not the prime people that you would like. They had a problem. They had all this land, and it needed to be populated. You needed a large population there to be able to defend it from the Indians, to be able to defend it from the French, be able to defend it from the Spanish. And so there was this rush to get a population into the colonies. Well, a lot of the ways that they did that is they sent their prisoners to America. And so there would be shipload after shipload of prisoners who were unloaded here in America, many of them unable or forced to pay for their voyage, and they didn't have any money. They were fresh out of prison. And so they would be forced into labor for a certain amount of time to repay their debt to the captain who sailed them over here against their will. And this process became known as indentured servitude or contract slaves. And so they were made to work for three or five or seven years, 
in order to pay off a boat trip that they didn't want to go on, you know, but they were freed from prison and just put into slavery. Also, England would empty their orphanages, and they would send orphans uh, across the ocean as well and settle them here. You would see prostitution, that they would go into these areas where prostitutes were, round up the prostitutes, and they would ship them to America as well because we had a large population of young men with money to burn, not a lot of women. And so some men would marry the prostitutes and have families. Others would look into the Indian population and marry Indians. But there was definitely a premium on ladies. It was said that during this time that actually a prostitute would earn four times the amount of money as a skilled labor man. So a a tradesman work all week and then one day a prostitute would earn as much as he would make in four days. A lot of drunkards were simply rushed onto boats and sailed across. You would have people who were kidnapped, you know, just walking down the street or a little too close to the harbor, and they're kidnapped and then forced onto a boat and sailed across the ocean. Because a lot of times these captains worked on commission for the amount of people that they would sail across the ocean, they would receive a stipend from the government. So... It was a very diverse, very weird population founding here. So you had those who came for religious freedom, who were very moral and upright and standing. You had people who wanted uh, to be pure, people who wanted to be separate, people who wanted to be uh, in the pursuit of God. Then you had a lot of people who were in the pursuit of money. You had a lot of people who were pursuing just simply an opportunity. And you had these groups all who were kind of mixing together. But the population in America grew fast. They were young, they had a high birth rate, and they had a longer life expectancy than even the people living in developed, civilized England. There was also a difference between the North and the South. In the Northern colonies, you had big cities. People lived grouped up together, and their economies were largely uh, trade-oriented. They were largely uh, port-oriented economies. And in the South, you had plantations, you had plant factories. And so there they would grow crops and harvest crops, and most of theirs would go through the ports of the North. But there was this effort to try to make a population civilized. And so there was the establishment of the churches. Uh, The different colonies would take on different colony churches. You know, so the state would have a state church. Even though there wasn't a national church, there would be state churches. And certain, uh, certain states would declare that they are an Anglican state. They are a Baptist state. They are a Presbyterian state. They would, they're a Catholic state. And that there would be these state churches. And we even see in 1647 that the colonies passed what is called a Old Deluder Law. And it stated that towns of a certain population had to found schools in order to teach reading. And they would have to be taught to read. And the textbook was the Word of God, was the King James Bible. And so they had to teach people how to read the Bible because they believed that keeping men ignorant was one of the largest schemes and tools of the devil. And so therefore, education was something that should be pursued as a Christian virtue, that people needed to know how to read the Word of God. And they actually had a law saying that people should be taught to read so they could read the Word of God. 
In the colonies also, not only was there a, a conflict amongst the population, among the morality, but also there was constant wars with Indians. So the wars would go back and forth. You know, it would be an encroachment into territory, but also the Indians, a lot of them are nomadic and it's hard to survive. And they start to see these prosperous uh, colonists uh, coming off of boats and building houses and starting farms. And they've got some cool tools and some neat stuff. And it's a whole lot easier to kill them and take it than it is to work for it. And so they would form raiding parties and they would invade towns or, or uh, outposts, uh, different farms, and they would kill the colonists. And in return, the colonists would form you know, bands and they would go out and hunt for revenge against the, against the Indians. And so you would have the Indians who would take the colonists as, as prisoners, as slaves, uh, that they would take the women as property and things such as that. And then at the same time, a lot of times the colonists, after they would conquer a tribe, that they would actually sell them to the West Indies as slaves. So it was very violent. It was very uh, dangerous outside of the large cities. And it was a rough place to live. But this was the reality for it. So as we see the 13 colonies begin to take shape, we see an idea of the culture, we see an idea of the economy, we see an idea of the morality, and we also see an idea of the religious climate. And we'll see that continue to develop and continue to really be a big player in the shaping of what will turn out to be America. All right, guys, that wraps up our second installment in the history series. Hey, if you're enjoying this, then uh, leave us a rating, leave us a comment, uh, like and share. Send this to somebody that you think would enjoy just simply learning about American history from a Christian perspective and, uh, and from uh, really pulling in all of the different elements so that we can understand where we came from so that then we can understand where we're going. Until next time, this has been Brother Jonathan at The Woodshed, where we tell the truth even when it hurts.